0: Hello? There we go. Thanks, Ben. That, uh, that was great. Much bigger uh, service, a lot more attendance uh, this 11. I, I wonder why. Chris and I were joking. We'd pick this service if we could pick, but, uh, at least today, but we didn't have that option. But anyway, welcome. We're, we're glad that you're here uh, at Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, like you've heard so far today, we uh, are in a sermon series in the book of Judges. So the book of Judges Old Testament book it is uh, written way before Jesus. Uh, we're going to see kind of the setting in, in just a little second, uh, how we got to this part, but I think it's on page 205 or 250 uh, in the Pew Bible in front of you. Feel free to, to read it in there. We'll also be, uh, we'll have all the passages uh, up here on the screen as well if you want to follow along. Today's uh, passage is going to be a lot more PG than most of you are used to. We've been in Judges for like 4-5. or Six weeks or so, and uh, a lot of PG-13, even rated R, type uh, passages so far. And so, sorry for those who've been uh, accustomed to a little more scandal or gore. Uh, we're gonna dial it back a little bit this week, but don't worry. There's a lot more to come in later weeks. But uh, the Book of Judges, it's it's historical and it's theological. It's it's historical. It's telling about uh, a real people, a real tribe. Battling against real enemies, and it's also theological. So even though what happened in our passage today happened thousands of years ago on the other side of the world in a much different context and culture and circumstances, the Book of Judges is also theoretical. It's in, or, sorry, theological. It's in the Bible. It's trying to teach us something about who God is and about His salvation and His character, and so. Uh, the book of Judges takes place after God has rescued his people, the people of Israel, out of slavery and oppression in Egypt. He's brought them uh, into a new land and he's promised to, to give them this land, to protect them, to provide for them. And it's their job, or was their original job, to, to kick out the people that were in this promised land. And uh, we're going to find out, we've seen this in Judges over and over again already, but we're going to see again today, uh, God's people don't listen to God. They rebel against him. They forget about him. They are highly influenced by, by other nations that are surrounding them. And now in today's passage, those nations are uh, destroying them and, and, and hurting them. So we've seen this cycle happen again and again in the book of Judges. Peter alluded, it to, alluded to it, and we're going to see it again today. So Israel commits, so Israel's God's, the people of God, of God that he's covenanted with, that he's committed to, that said, like, the rest of the world is going to know and understand me through this group of people. So Israel, they commit grievous sins against God. They worship false idols. They do horrible, horrible things. It happens again and again. And the God raises up other nations that are surrounding them to to come in and attack them and to rule over them. The people don't like this. They cry out for deliverance. God sends a judge. So rather than courtroom judge, think like a military captain or tribal chief or some rescuer type that comes in and helps them defeat their enemies. And then there's a bit of peace for a while as that judge rules, and then that guy dies, and the whole cycle starts again. So that's happened a bunch already in the book of Judges. It will continue to happen again. Uh, at the end of last chapter, there was peace, and then that judge died, and now it starts all over again. We've also been using this, uh, kind of, it's kind of like a cheat sheet that, that helps us understand what's, what theologically, what's Judges trying To teach us, because again, it's written in such a different context so long ago. What is it trying to teach us? And so, in Judges, we've been using this. When we see the individual judges, they point ahead to Jesus Christ Himself, who's the ultimate judge, the ultimate rescuer, the ultimate savior, the ultimate one that goes to battle for His people and wins a decisive victory and ushers in peace and prosperity for His people. So, when we see the judges do good things, we should say, hey, that reminds us of Jesus. Or Jesus is going to do this, but in such a greater way, in such a more cosmic or eternal or spiritual way, not just with one ethnic group of people, but now for the whole world. And we'll get to that a lot today. When we see Israel, and sometimes the the judges as well, because they're flawed and imperfect, and their rescue and salvation uh, is not as good as Jesus's, we should see ourselves so we should see ourselves in Israel, people who are prone to worship false gods, prone to rebel against God, prone to forget about him and to not care and to run towards shiny things that lead us to destruction instead of staying focused on our God. The other nations who, who are enemies of God's people, those point ahead to or those symbolize our enemies, our ultimate enemies of sin and death and evil. And then when there are periods of God's people living in the land with rest, with shalom, with prosperity, with thriving, they'll point ahead to Jesus and his salvation when we will get that ultimately and fully and eternally through the salvation that Jesus brings. So we're going to say this every single week probably because it's pretty helpful and judges can be pretty confusing. A lot of you have shared with us every single week how even just this helps blow away some of the fog and the confusion with a particular passage about a judge. So today we're going to look at Judges 6, not the whole chapter, but uh, the beginning part of it. And we're titling this sermon, The Calling of Gideon. So Gideon's our next judge. We're going to spend three weeks on his life. Today we're going to focus on his calling. God shows up and says, hey, you are going to be one of the judges. You are going to rescue Israel. And like Peter said, he's going to say, eh, maybe, like I'm weak, I'm imperfect, I'm scared. Is this really you speaking, God? We're going to see this happen. Again and again, but today we're going to focus especially on his his calling. Again, you can follow along uh, the passage behind me, or it's also in your pew Bibles uh, in front of you. So the first few verses, uh, verses 1 through 6, kind of set the stage for what's happening in Israel when, when Gideon shows up. And so the first six verses share about this great suffering. They're going through the, the greatest suffering we've seen uh, so far in Israel the book of Judges, and how it comes from, it's a consequence of Israel's rebellion and unfaithfulness to God. The evil that they're practicing has has led to the greatest suffering that uh, Israel has experienced so far in this book. So let's start by reading those first six verses. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and Because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So notice, too, what's going on. Uh, As Israel has moved into this land, they're, they're supposed to, uh, kick people out of this land. And we've talked about this in, in previous sermons, how they didn't do that. They didn't do that fully. And so there's all these other nations surrounding them, still living in this land, living amongst them. I notice, too, that these Canaanites, or, the, or today specifically the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east, they're not nice neighbors, right? So to be very clear, uh, the Canaanites are not like Canadians, right? We're not like... There's just a nice little border there, and we're still kind of buddies. We trade a bit. We're respectful to each other, except when we're, like, bantering about hockey or something. It's not that at all, but rather we see what the the Canaanites, these Amidianites, uh, Amalekites, and people of the east, what they're doing is, as I was reading this and studying this, I was was thinking about, like, the Vikings, right? Not the, the football team, but, like, the Vikings from Scandinavia. So they're just going into a land, and they are destroying it. They are, they're plundering. And they are taking whatever they want and just leaving when it's all gone. And so the Canaanites are really evil people and they're really hurting Israel. So they're coming in, they're eating all their crops, they're taking away uh, not just their food and their way to make money or to survive, but they're also taking away things like their sheep, their ox, their donkeys, so that they can't in later uh, years grow more crops. And so they're not even like, uh, like, a, like a nation that would come in and rule over them and tax them. Because at least if that would happen, the, the Midianites would care about the nation of Israel because they want them to kind of survive so that they'd get taxes. But rather, they just come in, they destroy, they take everything. Israel's so afraid that they leave their homes and they're like living in the mountains. They're living in caves and making these strongholds and hiding in dens until... These Midianites that are, they can't have even count it, there's so many, finally leave. And so that's the setup. So that's what's going on in our passage today. Israel is starving, their land is ravaged. They're living in caves. And so, what do they do? They cry out to the Lord. And what's important for us to see here is that even though they're crying out to the Lord, they're not repenting. And biblically, there's a huge difference between. Uh, regret, purely worldly regret, and repentance. And just a little bit later in our passage, we're going to see while they're crying out to the Lord, they still have their altars set up to false gods. They still have their pole set up to Asherah, and they still have their, their altars set up to Baal. And so they're crying out to God saying, oh, we regret the consequence of our sins, of our rebellion against you, God, but we're not repenting. We're not turning from these false gods, turning back to God Almighty, turning back to the Lord. They're not saying, we're sorry we've been unfaithful to you, that we've forgotten you, that we have pursued other false gods that would have been evil, but rather they're just saying, we hate the consequences of our sins, come save us. We don't like being starving people, living in caves. Whereas biblically, repentance means turning from our sins. It means going from worshiping false gods And and, and idols and turning back to God. It's having sorrow over what happens because of our sin, our broken relationship with God. Whereas Israel is just expressing regret. They're upset about their situation, not that they have sinned against their God or they've been unfaithful to him. So what God does is he addresses their apathy. He doesn't just show up right away, which is kind of unique to this passage in Judges. He doesn't just show up right away with the judge, with the rescuer. He actually addresses their lack of repentance, their apathy towards him. And before he brings salvation and rescue through a judge, which he will, he first confronts their regret and lack of repentance. So God sends for the first time in Judges, before A savior figure before a judge. He sends a prophet to give Israel a sermon. Verses 7 through 10. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. And from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you, and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So, as God sends a prophet to his people before he sends a savior, he reminds them of Israel's great salvation. He reminds them of who he is as God, and that he is a God that's rescued them out of something even worse than they're experiencing right now slavery and oppression for hundreds of years under the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. And he rescued them out of that prison of Egypt and brought them in a salvation-like experience into a new land that he promised to bless them in and give them protection and flourishing and shalom and provision, a land with the Lord, a land with God Almighty as their God, where they wouldn't have to fear any other tribes or any other gods. But they did not obey his voice. They didn't trust him. They broke their covenant with him. So God made a covenant with these people. When you you hear the word covenant, think, think of like a marriage, right? Where two people covenant together saying, I will do this. And the other side saying, I will do this. Israel broke the covenant with their God. They were unfaithful. They traded the Lord for evil, weak, false gods. And even after multiple times, we've seen this a bunch, we're going to keep seeing this more in Judges, after a bunch of times of God rescuing them and saving them, they forget about God, they run back to their idols, back to their evil, horrible practices that they're doing with with other nations that are living amongst them. And they go back to a place that's just as bad as their their, uh, slavery in Egypt. So we'd probably expect, if we, if this is all you knew, is just what we've, we've said so far this morning, you'd probably expect God to say, after this sermon of, I saved you, I was your God, I was your, I was your spiritual husband, and I, I was going to provide for you and protect for you if you'd stay in covenant with me. We might expect it to end, right? The next verse to say something like, right after, you have not listened to me, we might expect it to say, so try harder. Or knock it off, guys. Or seriously, how many times are you going to continue to forget me? Or run to these false, weak, wimpy little gods? Or maybe something like, okay, this time you have to prove that you're really my people. You have to prove that you really trust me before I bring you back. You have to demonstrate repentance, not just regret. And then maybe I'll take you back. But as we'll read in our passage, and as you can probably guess, if you know the character Of God, that's not what happens next. God sends a judge, he rescues his people. So, as the Israelites are calling out to God, they think what they need is deliverance, and on some level, definitely, they need deliverance, they need rescue from these oppressive people. But God knows what their greatest need is, He knows that what they really need, even more than deliverance, is they need a sermon. They need a prophet speaking to them, reminding them of who God is, what He offers, how much He loves them, what He's promised to them. God knows what they really need. Even more than deliverance and rescue is a call to repentance and obedience. So in God's kindness, he starts not by just saying, "I'll send a rescuer, a rescuer, rescue you from your enemies." and then very soon you forget about me again and fall back into the exact same trap. But in God's kindness, he starts by giving them a sermon. He addresses their greater need. In Tim Keller's commentary on the book of Judges, he writes, Before the Israelites can appreciate the rescue that will come, the people need to understand why they need rescuing. The prophet comes and helps them understand why they are in trouble, why they are in the trouble that they are. The prophet wants them to understand where their idolatry, their sin, their unfaithfulness has led them. They again have been unfaithful to their God. And this, this sermon and this passage should end with something like this. God saying, we are never, ever, ever getting back together again. First service didn't get this. They're kind of like, who, who is that? That's Taylor Swift. This is like a song. As, as the youth group or the millennials. They'll know who she is. But God should say this, right? After rebelling against him again and again, after cheating on him, after abandoning him, he should say something like this. If it, were, if it was just about what they deserved, we should expect God to say, I'm divorcing you. This is it. I'm calling it quits. You betrayed me. You've abandoned me. You've cheated on me. One too many times. But God doesn't. He doesn't say that. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite. Well, his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, He said to him, please my lord if the lord is with us why then has all this happened to us and where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying did not the lord bring us up from egypt but now the lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of midian and the lord turned to him and said go in this might of yourself go in this might of yours and save israel from the hand of midian do not i send you And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, one of the tribes of Israel, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened uh, cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of, of God said to, said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night the Lord said to him Take your father's bull and the second bull 7 years old and put and pull down the altar of Baal your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering on the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So the story continues. The next morning, the people of the city wake up. They're like, what happened to our Baal and our Asherah? And they find out that it's Gideon. They're about to kill Gideon. And then Gideon's father kind of shows up and says, well, isn't Baal a god? If he's really a god, can't he kind of like protect himself? And so they end up not going after Gideon. And then Gideon uh, takes up soldiers and goes and fights the Midianites. And there's a really great description of Gideon as he's about to go attack and defeat the Midianites. And it says that the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. Again, reminding us that it was the Lord who will win the battle not a brilliant Gideon or a strong Gideon or a great war uh, strategist or something, but rather it was going to be God that was going to rescue his people through this frail and weak and unconfident judge. So let's look at the central character in this passage, the, the angel of the Lord. We're going to look at why, who he is, why that's important, and why that helps us begin to understand uh, even more about what's going on here in Judges 6, as well as points us ahead to God's salvation. So first of all, this this character, the angel of the Lord, is probably uh, the Son of God, is probably the second person of the Trinity. And we'll, we'll talk about the reasons why people think that. And all the theologians and the commentators I read think that this is the case. Not Not everyone does, and so it's okay if, or we don't fully know, and it's okay if, You don't think that that is uh, Jesus before he added humanity to his divinity and was was born here. Among humans, uh, but regardless, this person is uh, speaking for God. Angel means messenger. He's a messenger from God, and he speaks with authority. He does miraculous, uh, supernatural-type things, and at the very least, he's a full representation of God. So with this character, the angel of the Lord, so not just an angel sent from God, but rather the angel of the Lord, what we see in this character is that it pictures for us an even greater and future salvation. So greater than Gideon's, that's about to happen, and even greater than Moses's, which is described in our passage here today. Really unique things are happening between Gideon and the angel of the Lord that haven't happened before and that point the story ahead to God's doing something new here. There's going to be a new salvation that's going to be even greater than the one that we're about to experience under the judge, Gideon. So a few reasons we think that this is is probably the Son of God, is probably uh, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. First is that he's called Lord. And so whenever you see the word Lord, all capitals, L-O-R-D, that's that's the name of God given in the Bible. So later uh, today, we're going to sing the song, The Great I Am, so... When when Moses is uh, going to be sent into Egypt to rescue God's people, he, like Gideon, is very afraid. He's like, uh, "Don't send me! I can't talk well. I'm afraid." How they get, you know, who should I tell them is sending me? Because no one's going to follow me or believe me. And God says, "Tell them I am, I am." That's the name of God, and gets translated into the word Lord or sometimes the, the word Yahweh. And so, just a little side note there. So this character, the angel of the Lord, is actually called Lord. He's actually called Yahweh three different times, verses 14, 16, and 18. He's called Yahweh both by the author of Judges, saying the Lord said, and then it's what the angel of the Lord said, and he's also called Lord or Yahweh by um, Gideon himself. Also, the word angel means messenger, so this could, like I said, it could just be someone that speaks for God, that's representative of God, or like Jesus says when he shows up, he is the ultimate messenger of God. He is actually the word of God, and John 1 describes Jesus like that. Jesus is the ultimate one that speaks for and represents God. He's the ultimate prophet or the ultimate messenger from God. And also this character, the angel of the Lord, does something supernatural. And it's right after he, he uh, touches the, 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 the food and drink with that um, stick and it uh, bursts into flames. It's right after that that Gideon realizes that he's looking face-to-face with the divine, face-to-face with God, and he should fear death. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Also, to answer the question about how can God both be in front of, of Gideon, but also in heaven? So you see in their interaction that the, the angel of the Lord is saying things like, uh, God, God has sent me to do this. But then Gideon also says, but this angel is also God. So how can God be in front of Gideon as well as in heaven? That question begins to be answered by the Christian under, understanding of who God is. That God is multipersonal, That God is one God, yet multiple persons. He is a trinity. And we at least see two persons of the trinity here in in two different locations. And also, finally, uh, the angel of the Lord, his concern when he shows up and when he's speaking, what he does, his concern is with bringing peace and salvation, which is exactly what Jesus came to do as well. So whether this is just purely a representative of God, a speaker for God, given divine power, or whether it actually is the Son of God, the second person of the trinity, The angel of the Lord pictures for us a new salvation that's going to come. Better than Gideon's, better than Moses's. One that will do a few things. We see this here. One where face to face, looking face to face, seeing God will not end in death. Verse 22 said, And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face, freaking out, but then the Lord... Says to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. So Gideon's interaction with the Lord is is very different. It's unlike what happened with Moses when Moses saw God. So unlike Moses, who asks God, he says, I want to see your face, God. I want to see your glory. So this happened a few generations prior to, to Gideon here. In Exodus thirty-three, twenty, we read. But God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. Because God is a holy God. Because God can't be in the presence of sin. He's, he's a consuming fire. And when people are in the presence of God, especially in the Old Testament, they fall on their face terrified because they realize how imperfect they are, how sinful they are, how they're at their core, selfish and prideful and and hateful and arrogant. They remember their pasts. They remember their hearts. They remember their actions. And so, in a very unique way, unlike what happened with Moses, Gideon is able to see the Lord face to face and not die. Gideon's promised he won't die, which pictures a future salvation where because our sins are removed, we can now see God face to face without fear, without death, without condemnation. And this all comes through Jesus. In the New Testament, we read about Jesus himself, Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So now in Christ, now in Jesus, we can now see the face of God we want to know what God looks like, if we want to know who God is, we look to his Son, who is the image of God. And now through Jesus's salvation, not only can we see God, but we also can see him face to face. We can be with him face to face without fear, without punishment, if our trust is in him. So not only does the angel of the Lord picture for us a greater salvation than has ever been experienced so far and will be experienced in the book of Judges. But it also brings peace. So in a time of great, great violence, right? Like people are starving to death. People are being murdered. People are not in their homes. They're hiding in in damp caves in the mountains, terrified of this swarm of people that comes in and destroys and, and takes everything. So that's the setting of what's going on. God shows up himself and brings peace. He offers peace. He promises peace. Back again to verse 23. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You should not die. And then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it, The Lord is Peace. The Lord's response to Gideon of peace, and then Gideon's pronouncement that the Lord is himself peace, It foreshadows not just the peace that was about to come when Gideon fights the enemies and they have peace for a few years or a few decades, but it foreshadows a much better peace that's going to come when not just our physical enemies, but all of our spiritual enemies are removed, not just for a time, but forever. And not just for a small amount of land, but for the new heaven and the new earth. And not just for one ethnic group of people, but rather for... The whole world, for all tongues, tribes, and nations. So this peace that's promised and and declared here with the angel of the Lord points ahead to a much greater peace. When Jesus comes into the world, when when his humanity is added to his divinity, when he's born, one of the names he's given is the Prince of Peace. And it is through his perfect life and his substitutionary death in our place that this eternal and spiritual, and physical, and divine peace will come. A peace that dwarfs the peace that Gideon is going to experience and bring to God's people. And we don't only see the Lord speak peace to Gideon, but we also hear the Lord call him not to fear, which is huge. All throughout the Old Testament, when God shows up, whether it's in a cloud, or on a mountain, or in a storm, or with lightning bolts or whatever it might be, people freak out. People are terrified because they realize their sin. They realize their hearts. They realize their brokenness. They realize, holy and enormous God, small, sinful me. I'm toast. But when God shows up this time, he says, peace, not death. And he says, don't be afraid. He casts out fear. But as the angel of the Lord shows up, he brings a message of don't fear anymore. Something new is going to happen where you can be face-to-face with God and not fear. Again, this points ahead to an even greater salvation that we're not going to see in the book of Judges and we won't see until Jesus shows up. One of Jesus' disciples, after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, writes about this. And he says, this is what was accomplished on the cross. This is what we have By trusting in Jesus, by this, putting our faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So when Jesus shows up, not as the angel of the Lord, but when he shows up as the the God-man and he lives the perfect life that we could never live and he dies the death that we deserve and he's resurrected as the the first fruit or the first example of the resurrection that his followers will receive, when that happens, we see Jesus proclaim this, this no fear, that now through perfect love, fear is cast out because fear has to do with punishment. Through trust in Jesus Christ, we no longer have to fear punishment. We know we're broken. We know we're sinful. We know we've had at least one impure motive or thought or action in our lives. But now through Jesus's work done on the cross, he takes on our sin and we receive his righteousness. Jesus was judged for our sin and God is a just God. So he's not going to judge Jesus and punish Jesus for our sins and then look at you and say, okay, I'm going to judge that sin a second time. So we no longer have to fear being in the presence of a holy God like they did all throughout the Old Testament because Jesus took that punishment and we receive his righteousness. And all of this proceeds or comes out of God's love for us. And it is that love, that perfect, sacrificial, divine love that casts fear out of our lives. So in this powerful, beautiful interaction between Gideon and the angel of the Lord, we see a whisper that soon there's going to be a different type of salvation. We're able to see God without dying and we're welcome to him as a friend. Where there's no fear between us. Where there's perfect love that that drives away terror and fear. And we can be fully known and accepted by him. So the angel pictures and points ahead to a future salvation, and then Gideon shows up, and he personifies, or he points ahead to an even greater Savior. So spoiler alert here with uh, Gideon. Oops, sorry about that. Skip. There we go. Uh, all the judges are imperfect. Some of them are like really imperfect people, but all of them bring an imperfect salvation, an imperfect rescue. While they might completely defeat Israel's enemies and there might be great human flourishing and peace for a long amount of time, it eventually ends. And so when we see Gideon and all the other judges, it, it hints at or whispers of a great salvation, but it points ahead to this can't be the end. This can't be the end. Gideon can't be the end all because... His salvation is just temporary. His salvation is just physical. And he's just not a perfect savior as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Gideon and see how he points ahead to Jesus. And we're going to see how Jesus is so much better than Gideon. Gideon's great. Gideon's salvation is really great. But Jesus' is even greater. And we're going to see how God in his sovereignty plays this story out so that Gideon and what he does and what he says and how he acts looks a lot like the way Jesus is going to be an even greater savior than Gideon. So we're going to use this phrase, Gideon is the true and, or Jesus is the true and better Gideon. Where Gideon falls short or is incomplete or, or not eternal and, and divine and truly powerful, Jesus really is. Jesus is the true and better Gideon who wasn't only promised that God would be with him, but was actually God himself. And it is through him that we can actually be with God forever. Oops. Did I skip one? Sorry, I lost the slide up there. So when Jesus shows up, what's another one of the names that he's given? He's given Emmanuel. Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when Jesus shows up, it's promised that now something new is happening. So Gideon just kind of gets a promise that the Lord will be with him in order to be mighty and to bring about a particular battle and a particular rescue. But now when Jesus shows up, being with God is actually a possibility. Not only is it promised at his birth, at the very end of the Bible, the last two chapters of the Bible describe uh, eternity, describe the way that the, the the new, uh, restored, redeemed heaven and earth will look. And it's described as Jesus, God himself, living among his people. Jesus is also the true and better Gideon, who didn't mistrust God's plan and power of salvation, but rather fully trusted God the Father. And even himself was God's plan and power for salvation. So as Gideon is going back and forth with God about, seriously, how are you going to do this? It's not going to work. I'm really weak. Show me a sign. Jesus trusts in God the Father's plan. Not only trusts in it, but chooses it and wants it and was himself God's plan. Jesus is the true and better Gideon who wasn't just obedient by offering an acceptable sacrifice, but actually offered up himself, his own body, as an acceptable sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 12 and 14 says, Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. For by a single, sacri- single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is the true and better Gideon who doesn't just build an altar called the Lord is peace, but is himself called the Prince of Peace, the one and only way to receive spiritual and eternal peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, faith in Christ, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace doesn't just happen in one moment with one guy and one unique supernatural experience, but now through Jesus we can have peace. Peace with God and through his work on the cross and all the effects of that peace in the whole cosmos, between creation and, and humanity and nature and between us and other humans and us and God, will come all through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and better Gideon who doesn't just destroy some false evil idols under the cover of darkness, but destroys all evil decisively in his own death, hanging on a cross under the cover of darkness. So, two things as we leave here today, what we want, what God wants to communicate to all of us isn't Jesus' salvation amazing? Gideon's is great, right? We're going to see Gideon's be pretty great the next couple weeks. But isn't Jesus' so much better? Apart from Jesus, we're in an even worse state than they were. Right? Apart from Jesus, we're worse than the Israelites. We're starving in caves, impoverished at the mercy of our enemies and without any hope of saving ourselves. But just like in today's passage, Jesus doesn't show up and say, do better. Stop sucking as a Christian. Try harder. You're embarrassing me. Nor does he say, you've sinned against me just too many times. You're out of here. I'm going to find a new bride. I'm going to find a new people. Or you have to work so hard for a while and prove to me that you really are repentant, that you really do love me. He doesn't say that, does he? God promises a much, much better salvation than the one we saw here today. Sam Alberry, who is a, a preacher and author in the UK, wrote this tweet, and I just love it. He says, nice sermon feedback to give to your preacher is you are amazing. Better sermon feedback is that passage is amazing. But the best sermon feedback, the best thing your pastor or preacher can hear is, isn't Christ amazing? And that's our goal every Sunday when we preach. We want you to see how, beautiful and powerful and better, Jesus and his salvation really is. Gideon's is pretty cool. It is pretty powerful. It is a great story. Yet Jesus is so much better. His salvation is so much sweeter, so much more complete, so much more divine, so much more eternal, and so much more applicable and accessible to us, people who are living in the Twin Cities in 2018. And secondly, believe and live, both of those, believe believe and live as though we can now know God intimately, know God face to face, and approach him without fear. So whether for the first time, maybe you've never done this before, you've never actually believed that God can clean you up, that he can forgive you of your sins, that he can actually know who you are and still accept you, believe that today for the first time or whether it's for the millionth time, because this is so hard to do. Tim Keller writes about this. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Right? We do this all the time. We put on a face to try to look good, to try to, you know, if people really knew our thoughts, our motives, our hearts, our pasts, oh man, they would never be our friends. They would never let us be a part of their community group, or they would never want to be around us. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. But, To be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything else. So now in Christ, we can be fully known and fully accepted. In Christ, He can know our mess, our past, our struggles, our doubts, our fears, our flaws, our self hate, our pride, our racism, whatever it might be. And He loves us then. It is, while we were, it is when we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. Not when we're lovable or, or perfect or, or worthy of being loved. But in Christ, we can be known by God. We can be accepted by him. We can see him face to face, all without fear. So believe that. and That's really hard to believe. You might say you believe it with your lips, but practically the way it pay, plays out, it's so hard to believe that, that we don't have to kind of clean ourselves up before going to church or approaching him in prayer. We just feel like he's always mad at us. We feel like there's this great fear that he we can't let him fully know us or else he would reject us. So believe that. Remember that. Tell it to yourself and to others again and again and again. Sing about it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Preach it to yourself as much as you preach anything to yourself. We are fully and intimately known and still loved. And don't only believe it, but live it. Live as if that's really true. Have a humble confidence in your place before God. Humble because you know it's not about you. It's been given. It's been gifted. Don't get cocky that you can now see God face to face and you can approach him without fear. Because you didn't earn it, it was given. So be humble and at the same time have great confidence because it's not about you. When God looks at you, if you are a Christian, if you've, trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. God, the Father sees Jesus' perfection. He sees Jesus' righteousness. You're clothed with that. We're hidden in Christ. We've been given his name. We've been given a new identity in Christ. So let us approach God with this humble confidence, knowing that the God of the universe can know us and see us and through Christ forgive us and we can have great confidence to move towards him in friendship and in love and not without fear. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this great descriptive passage about your salvation and about your Son as Savior. And God, it's just, it's just so hard for us to believe as people. God, it's so hard to... We just have no other earthly relationships that are like this, where we can be fully known and fully loved and accepted. And so, God, we pray that all of us would believe and live that, whether believe for the first time or just pounded into our hearts and heads for the millionth time. God, we thank you that the story doesn't end in Judges 6. We thank you that a greater salvation came and a greater Savior came in your Son. Help us to, to believe that, to love that, to live out of that new identity. In Jesus' name, amen.